February 6, 2011, lecture discussion number 32 on the Book of Romans. And being that this is a special Super Bowl visitor-friendly, seeker-sensitive sermon. Thank you for laughing. Complete with clever little football-related references. Thank you for laughing again. Sprinkled throughout after great thought and effort that I put into it. Keep laughing. I'm very much aware of what time it is, so don't worry. I am the one, however, well, Ben's here. He could get the game turned on as well. So there's enough of us here technologically. We'll get the game turned on for you, so don't be worried about it. This is going to be a truncated lecture. I shortened it quite a bit so that you can remain calm. You're not going to miss, miss one single commercial. Fear not, I am a professional. Though the challenge on this day, like days like this, they're all like this, there's not just this one, this is probably the worst. It's actually, uh, the challenge is to actually accomplish something for you and for all of the people listening by uh, internet as well. Something of value, knowing that full well the audience is hostile to anything over 30 minutes. And so what can I do? As you know, it's very hard to do what I do in 30 minutes. It's, it's, this is, in fact, I have reduced it, by the way. I used to do these lectures 90 minutes long. They're a classroom lecture, and it's very tough to get them under a, a, an hour and get the material done. And it's going to be really difficult to do it in 30 minutes. So I got to fend off that revolt, the 30 minute revolt that starts. People will just get up and start eating. The band will start coming forward. They do that anyway now to me. And so I gotta stop that from happening. And that's the, uh, that's my goal for today. Try to keep up with me. I'm gonna be really, really, comedy is hard for. This is, uh, seriously though, I am gonna just throw a bunch of stuff all over the place. It'll be, uh, it'll just come out of every direction if you think, um, it'll be a scatter gun. I'm going to get that done today because, um, this is a good day to do this kind of thing. So, uh, you, you'll find it um, maybe a little disjointed, but eventually next week it all goes back together. Okay, so we find ourselves at 1 Samuel 15. And that's probably the best known and most preached football Super Bowl passage in the Old Testament. How fortunate we're here today. What a coincidence. I'm guessing 90% of all churches in the country today, maybe 95, are listening to sermons on 1 Samuel 15 because of the Super Bowl theme. I, I, I just been positive of that. Uh, okay, maybe not. I don't hope any of you believe that because it is almost completely untrue. Not completely, almost completely. Anyway, 1 Samuel 15, so you know this, is chapter 2, or is the second part of the Amalekite trilogy. Just like with the Gibeonites, just as I had a, a saga, or I had three parts, I say three in the Gibeonites, uh, but there is actually four. Uh, in any event, the Amalekites have a trilogy. They, chapter 2 of that trilogy, or the second part, is 1 Samuel 15. What we did last week, uh, 1 Samuel 28, is chapter 3 of that trilogy. So yes, yes, it's true, we are going backwards. Is any of you surprised by that? I thought not. The question is, is since we're backing up, where are we backing up to? We're backing up, of course, to the first part 
which is Exodus 17 and 18. If I had a board, I'd be writing on the board today. I have a pen in my hand so that I don't get nervous because I did not bring out the board. So what? Yes, 2 o'clock, and it's coming. So no board today. But chapter 1 of the three-part Amalekite trilogy is Exodus 17 and 18. And that, by the way, is about 400 to 500 years. Some will say 500. Some will say a little less. But it's in that range. The, the years between the first time the Amalekites come into view and when they are exterminated uh, are the end of their extermination, if you will, in 1 Samuel 28. Notice the similarity between the Gibeonites, right? That's why they fit together. That's why I get so, uh, and now I get stats, okay? I have people on one sermon, I don't even know what it is. Um, it's, there's almost 300 people have looked at it, and I've kind of gone over it to see wh- why do they like this one. I have this incredible Gibeonite saga that fits so wonderfully with the Malachite sa- trilogy. Does anybody listen to it? No, it's at the bottom. It's very discouraging. <laughs> We've tried changing the name and everything. But in spite of all of Dave's, and those of you who think I am doing any of those things on Sermon Audio, I am not. Dave is doing all of those. He's writing the blurbs, and he is titling the sermons. My title is February 6, 2011. That's my title. Dave is the one putting all the clever titles on there, and that's not even working. They're, they're avoiding my Gibeonites, which is very discouraging, and I cry and weep a lot over that. But anyway, Exodus 17, 18. What is Exodus 17 and 18? You should know. You should know this. You absolutely should know. Exodus 17 is where the water comes out of the rock. It is where the Amalekites attack the hindmost of Israel, and it is where Jethro, the Kenite, comes into view and talks to Moses. Three astonishing typological incidents, actual, historical, literally true people. When I say typological incidents, let me explain that. These people actually said and did what they said, what the Bible said they said and did. They are actual, historical, literally true people and events. And then what did God do with them? He hid inside of that spiritual truths, prophecies about himself, evidence of his character. His redemptive work and his person are hidden there. There's three of them in Exodus 17 and 18 that, as I said, are extraordinary. The water from the rock. Moses kills the rock and out of the dead rock comes living water. Now, your Old Testament might say, or your translation of the Old Testament might say struck. The new, or the old King James has it absolutely correct and says smote. So get rid of struck and put in smote in Exodus 17, best thing you can do. So hopefully you can see the typology that just smacks you right in the forehead. The rock is who? The rock is Christ. It even says so. Paul will tell us that. I'll get to that in a second. Let me repeat now really quickly, though. Exodus 17, 18 is the first part. 1 Samuel 15 is the second part. First Samuel 28 is the third part of the Amalekite trilogy. So eventually we're going to, and we're backing up to it. Eventually we're going to have to tie them all together. We won't do it today. Why not? Yes, Super Bowl Sunday. And again, very similar in form to the Gibeonite saga as well. And by the way, get used to that. The Bible is supernaturally consistent. 
Duh. God wrote it. And learn to notice how these things, these, uh, no other way to put it, these groups and people go through scripture over hundreds of years and be ready to tie them all together everywhere you find them. That is the principle of first mention. Okay, next week I'll put it on the board and put it all together, as I said, so you can see it. And it's very important, I know, for some of you to see it written down. But last Sunday, lecture discussion number 31 on the book of Romans, we, we dealt with Saul and Samuel. So let me just imagine I'm writing Saul now on the board, and I'm writing Samuel. And Samuel has, he's an old man, and he is wearing a mantle. Lots of questions there. Why is he in the form of an old man, and why is he wearing his mantle, the mantle of Samuel, as opposed to the mantle of Elijah, as opposed to the mantle of who? The mantle of Christ, as opposed to the mantle of who else? Adam. We have mantles in the Bible. What should you do? M-A-N-T-L-E, not M-A-N-T-E-L. I've had people come up to me and say, uh, I have a mantle over my fireplace. No, it's different. You may have a mantle over your fireplace, but that's not what we're talking about here. But again, Saul, Samuel. Old man with a mantle, the witch of Endor, very important. Notice I call her the witch and not just the medium. The witch of Endor, the two servants that are with Saul that experience this along with the witch and Saul, the unleavened bread that that woman rushes around to get the fatted calf. That summarizes really quickly 1 Samuel 28. Imagine that on the board. There it is. You can all turn around and look at it. It's not on there, though. But imagine it if you can. So with at least those, and there's many more than just those, but at least those on the very front, now we're going to try to do what in 1 Samuel 15? We're going to try to find their complements. Or they may be exactly there in the same form. So we're going to compare 1 Samuel 15 to 1 Samuel 28 and try to find those things. Now before we read 1 Samuel 15... I should insert here the fatted calf issue of 1 Samuel 28. Saul is in the, on the ground, laying on the ground, refusing to eat and refusing to get up because he's just been told by Samuel that he's doomed. Not doomed spiritually, doomed physically. He is going to be killed and his sons are going to be killed. Tomorrow, Samuel says, you're going to be with me. That, by the way, is good news. But for now, Saul realizes he's dead tomorrow. And he won't get off the ground, and he won't eat, and he's just going to lay there and essentially throw a fit. I have tried it myself. Doesn't ever seem to get me out of anything, but I do feel better when I'm done. There's Saul. And this witch, who has just seen Samuel, And again, it is identified as Samuel over and over and over again in 1 Samuel 28. Doesn't stutter, doesn't say in the form of Samuel, somebody that's pretending to be Samuel, a guy who looks like Samuel, somebody shook hands with a guy, lived down the street from a three-legged dog that was cousins with somebody that once knew a guy that looked sort of like a friend of Samuel. It doesn't say that. It says Samuel every single time. So that's Samuel. The Bible does not stutter there. 
A position that has the Bible stuttering is very hard to defend. Okay, let me be more straight. It's impossible to defend that position. Sorry if that offends you. Not really. That is a fake sorry. But in any event, there's this she, this witch, freaks out, for lack of a better term. She screams. She's very afraid. Why is she very afraid? We will find the answer to why she is very afraid in 1 Samuel 15. If you don't find the the reason this witch is afraid in 1 Samuel 28, and you don't find it in Exodus 17, you will find it in 1 Samuel 15. So when we read 1 Samuel 15, you're going to find out why this lady screamed when she saw Samuel. Lots of people screamed when they saw Samuel, especially witches. And so she now realizes that things are different than what she thought, and she runs around baking unleavened bread. And she should be in a hurry, by the way, to bake unleavened bread, because that's what you do when you bake unleavened bread. You're in a hurry, because that is the bread that came out of Egypt. The uh, Israelites hurriedly baked that bread in order to leave Egypt uh, as quickly as possible. And so that is still that element is still there with the unleavened bread, as I would expect. And that tells me to go back into Exodus and look at that unleavened bread to find out why it's in this story, because the hurrying is attached to it. What is the typology or the symbolism of the unleavened bread where the Israelites made it hurriedly with holes in it, and with burnt lines on it when they left Egypt. There it is a picture of Christ. So what would you think here? It's also a picture of Christ. So anyway, she also goes and kills the fatted calf. And right now I'm writing on the board, fatted calf, and I'm trying to draw a picture of a fatted calf. And some of you will think, wow, it's a self-portrait. And I would be, I would be only slightly offended by that. Because <laughs> I have mirrors, and I know, I know that I'm in a lot of trouble, and it didn't get any better today. All that chicken over there, that's mine. All mine. It's cold, you won't like it. There's no microwave here, unplug it. Doesn't work, sorry. Not really. Fake, sorry. Okay, she kills the fatted calf. And now most of you are aware of the fatted calf's significance from where in the New Testament? Where's the New Testament compliment, fatted calf, fatted calf? It is the parable of the two sons. You may say prodigal son, in which case, i gotta, I got to help you. There's two sons there. It's not about the prodigal son alone. It is about what the other son does. One son has his typology, if you will. Remember, it's a parable. Parables have meanings to the group that whom uh, Christ was teaching it to. He, who was he talking to about the uh, two sons? He was talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees knew they were in the story, and they knew that they were the older son. So I have two sons. One's the Pharisee. The other is the lost Gentiles, right? That's where the fatted calf comes from in our minds, but not really. The fatted calf comes from the witch of Endor here. Luke 15, 11 through 31, for those of you who are following me today on the Internet. Now, so the parable of the two sons. And one son eats the fatted calf. Which one is that? That's the Gentile son, right? 
The other son does not. Which son is that? That's the Pharisee. So the fatted calf is a symbol. One son eats it, one son does not. So I have the death of the fatted calf. So what is it? Obviously, if you are restored to God, that's the father in that story. You eat the fatted calf, so you have restoration there. I'll ask you another thing. Always look for Christ in all of his parables. He's in every single one of his parables somewhere. Where is he in this one? Most would say that he is the father that they reject. Some will say he is the father whom they will reject, and he is also something else. What will they say to you? He is the fatted calf. Okay? Mull on that as I keep going. Anyway, keep that symbol at the forefront because it becomes a very important piece to solving the witch of Endor in uh, 1 Samuel 28. It is good to eat the fatted calf, by the way. And as usual, always when we begin to read this together, and we are very, very fast going to read it, search for Jesus Christ. Every time you read the Old Testament, every single time, find Jesus Christ. If you don't find him in the Old Testament, you have failed. Go back to and read it again. Keep reading it until you find him. And if you never find him, what have, what do you got to do? That's right. Come here. Bring pizza. That's why I get the big money. I will help you. Okay, here we go. 35 verses. Search for Christ. We're poor in concrete. This is just hard work today. Those of you who came, you, as I said, are the most blessed. You're the ones pouring the foundation today. 1 Samuel 15, 35 verses, 1 through 35. Read it with me. While I'm reading it, you start looking for Christ. Okay, here we go. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Remember, this is the second chapter, if you will, the second part of the Amalekite trilogy. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Kill everything. Now, that's God saying that. Is that good? Yes, that's good. Is that love? Yes, that's love. What else is it? It's mercy. If you think that God is some kind of capricious, arbitrary killer that just gets angry and pitches a fit, then you have totally missed what's there. You are absolutely dead opposite of what the Bible is saying there. Okay? If you don't know why, then you're forced to come next week or go by Internet like everybody else is doing anyway. Pretty soon it'll be me and Lori here, I know. I have to bribe the rest of you with better food. I'm kidding about that, sort of. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and tell him, 
200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah and Saul came to the city of Amalek, notice it's a city, and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, who's a Kenite, by the way? Jethro is a Kenite, takes you back to Exodus 18. Who's Jethro? Father-in-law of Moses, why is he here? One of the astonishing typological pictures in all of the Bible. Not all of the Bible, but certainly amazing one. Go depart, get down from among the, among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children, to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Uh Uh-oh, what's the problem? Supposed to kill everybody. Why didn't he kill Agag? He's the king. You're going to kill somebody. You ought to kill the king. Why are we keeping the king alive? And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen. And what's this word? The fatlings. Okay, there we go, boys and girls. Here we go again, right? The lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. In other words, well, we'll keep going. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So they got rid of everything that was worthless. But they figured out what wasn't worthless. And they thought, well, maybe we can keep this. In spite of the fact they were told what? Take it all out. Why did God want it all gone? So you have to answer that question. Here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel said, say, it was told to Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself. He did. Saul built a big hand in there, a great big thing with his hand on it. Saul went to Carmel. And indeed, he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Gilgal, very important. Never, never pass this without reading, a, without noticing Gilgal there. What else has happened in Gilgal? Got to know, or you will miss the story. You got to know what happened in Gilgal, or you won't understand why God wants them all killed. Back in verse 3, okay, here we go. Then Samuel went to Saul. I'm saying that a lot, trying to speed up. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Did he? He didn't. That's a lie. Why would he lie to Samuel? But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? I got sheep running around everywhere. And the, and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. They. Obvious question. Who's they? For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. It's all in people's fault. People did it. To sacrifice to the Lord our God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So we kept the best to sacrifice. Really. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, or if you prefer, shut up. 
Probably fits better that way. And I will tell you what the Lord has said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? Did not the Lord anoint you the king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey? The voice of the Lord. Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil? What you have done, Saul, is evil. What's the obvious question? Why is it evil? If you think that what Saul did is not evil, you have, of course, missed the entire purpose and meaning of this passage. You have to know that it is evil and why it is evil, or it will confuse you. And now, that's a shame. And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, really? And gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, sorta, and utterly, and brought back Agag of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Really? I brought back Agag and I utterly destroyed them. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Again, Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Is it better to bring him sacrifices and burnt offerings or is it better to obey? Here's what it tells you. You can't miss it. Behold! Whenever you see behold, stop! Very important to see what comes next. To obey is better than sacrifice. Let me put it a better way. To obey is better than tithing. To obey is better than coming to church on Sunday at 1 o'clock. As holy as you are. To obey is better than anything. Obey what? Now you got to find out what to obey, right? Believing is obeying. The commandment to believe and to heed than the fatlings. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Does that help you with indoor? And stubbornness as is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. That's important. Rejected Saul as being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have, I have transgressed to the... Transgress the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Do you believe that? He's afraid of the people? That's the reason he kept all the money, kept the king alive, because he's afraid of the people? Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He wants Samuel to go with him. Why does he want Samuel to go with him? But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned around to go away, and Saul seized the edge of his talit. It might say robe in yours, but it's not. It's his mantle. It's his talit. And it tore. So he tore his talit. We used to have a talit. It's a prayer shawl on the stage, but it's not here because we no longer own the building. We're parasites in this building, but we're free parasites, so it's okay. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, that's David, and also the strength of Israel 
will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Strength of Israel is a name for God. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now. Saul said this, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. He wants to stay king as long as he can, right? That I may worship the Lord your God. Because if they heard Samuel, they'd get rid of Saul right now. So he wants Samuel to come with him. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. That keeps his job, right? Then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him, it says in your Bible, maybe cautiously, but it really is stately. Agag walked before him as king of the Malachites. He came in with great strength and pomposity, if you will, pompousness. He's king. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Nope. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women children, childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Very important, Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house in Gebeah of Saul. And here's an answer to last week's question for those of you who were here. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Samuel never went to Saul again until the day of his death. What day was that? First Samuel 28, right? Now, Saul went to Samuel, but Samuel never went to Saul again until the day of his death. So when Saul saw Samuel again, in case you think it's not Samuel, here it is proof again, that's Samuel, because that's the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn from Saul, for Saul, seeing I've rejected him? Okay, there you go. So the obvious questions, really quick. Why is it that God ordered their destruction, the Amalekites? What is it they represent? They must represent something. This is a doctrinal lesson. This is where Ada Ruth Habershon comes in, who wrote Study of the Types and how the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament and many others. A brilliant scholar died 1918. No woman should have a library of biblical scholars without Ada Ruth Habershon, nor should any man. She is that important. She explains this. She has the definitive work. How is it that he orders their destruction? What do they represent? How is it they fit with Malachi 1, 2 through 3, which is where God says, Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Is that fair? Yes, it's fair. Why does he hate poor old Esau? Does he hate Esau? Does he hate anybody? God does not hate Esau. If you think God hates Esau, you have missed the point. And it's the same as the Amalekite point, by the way. It is the same. Who does Esau represent? I have twin brothers there. It is the representation of Esau that he hates. It is the representation that he intends to blot out. The Amalekites are also Esau descendants, and God intends to blot them out. Exodus 17, 14. The obvious question is why? What have they done What's the spiritual lesson here? How do the twins Esau and Jacob connect to the weak, the hindmost of Israel and the Amalekites? Because you see, the Amalekites, they were the first to attack the nation of Israel. They got them right when they came out of Egypt. Right after they got that water from the rock, 
The Amalekites hit them and kill the weakest of the weak. They kill the stragglers. They kill the ones that are the furthest from Moses. They attack them. If you're too far away from Moses, the Amalekites wipe you out. If you're too far away from Moses, how good a job you doing? How strong a Christian are you? How strong of a witness are you? You're the furthest away. And the Amalekites get you. Who are the Amalekites? Who are the Amalekites? Come on. Who is Esau? He's you. He's me. Them is us. What part of you are the Amalekites? What part of you is God going to blot out? That is the typological side of it, okay? The Amalekites killed those Israelites who were stragglers. That's enough for you to figure it all out. I gave you more than I wanted to. We could quit now. Get your potatoes. Jojo's, by the way. Heat them up. Notice that Saul is disobedient to the commandment from God. Notice that God orders the death of the men, the women, the infants, the nursing children, the ox, the sheep, the camel, the donkey. What could cause this? Where else did he wipe out old groups of people, killed the children? Where else does he do that? What's wrong here? What's wrong with the Amalekites? He wipes out people where else? I'll help you, Sodom. He wipes out people somewhere else. Where is it? Genesis 6 with what? Noadic flood. Why does he do that? What's wrong with the Amalekites? He has to wipe them out. He has to wipe out the children. It's for their sake, isn't it? He's got to save them. He's also got to wipe out those animals. Why? What's wrong with those animals? Notice Samuel, the heaven-sent man, hacks Agag to pieces. An old man wearing a mantle, a prayer shawl, a symbol. It really looks like the tent of Moses. It looks like a tabernacle of Moses. Is what it's designed to do over your head. So an old man wearing his tallit cuts the king of the Amalekites to pieces with a sword. Does that remind you of anything? Revelation 19.13, Jesus Christ is wearing a mantle. He has his talit on. He has a sword. His name is spelled out. It's not tattooed on his thigh. For those of you who run around tattooing things on your thighs, because you say it's biblical, it's not tattooed or written on his thigh. It's tied in the knots of the talit, and you can read it by understanding how the knots form words. And he has a sword. His name is spelled out in the knots. And what's he do with his sword? He's the ancient of days, Daniel 7, 9, Revelation 1, 14, Revelation 19, 12. He's coming in divine judgment with a sword. And what's he do with it? He kills somebody first. Who's he kill with it? He kills the Antichrist with it. Also, the note also that Samuel brought judgment to Agag before the Lord again in Gilgal. Gilgal was Joshua's home base where all the people who obeyed were circumcised. It's a place of obedience. The second generation, they were obedient. They became circumcised and they entered the land of the giants. And Gilgal is where Agag is slain, where the kingdom is taken from Saul because of his disobedience. God waited 400 years before he did this, maybe 500. And finally the time has come and Saul doesn't do it. He saves the head guy and all the stuff. Now, here's the obvious questions, and then we'll go. Why doesn't Saul follow the commandment to the letter? Why does he spare Agag? Why spare the fat calves? 
the fatlings, what's Saul's motive for not putting to death? Let me help you, for not mortifying, for not going through with mortification. Colossians 3.5, Romans 6.14, Romans 8.13. Why does Saul attempt to lie to Samuel? Who would lie? Who would ever stand before God and lie? I got sheep walking everywhere around me, and I'm lying about the sheep. Why would I do that? Who would do that? When would they do it? Who would stand before God? Who would stand before Jesus Christ, who has a sword, and say, I am taking sheep? What kind of what kind of moron would do that? Us, we do it every day, every single day we do it. We don't miss a day. Ain't no sheep here. I got rid of the sheep. Sorry about the ox. I'll get rid of him later. He's really a nice looking ox. He's fat. Gonna gonna be good. I got to get something for him. And that King King and I are kind of. I'll kill him later. We're gonna be friends for a while though. Who does that? Why is it great evil to do this? Why did Saul lie about the people wanting to sacrifice Agag's fatlings? Do you really think God wants Agag's fatlings? Would he accept Agag's sacrificed fatted calves? Why did Saul think this would work? Okay, next week we'll clean all of that up. And we'll put it all together. You will be the only ones that have any idea what I'm talking about next week, which will make you what? Absolutely the same as no one else. Think about that. And we'll, we'll get it all done. Thank you for coming. And uh, enjoy the game. Let's rise and be dismissed.